The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. He is risen. All right, I'm glad you guys didn't forget. Uh, Why don't you take your Bibles with me and open up to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the Gospel of Matthew uh, today, and as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. How do you prepare yourself for Resurrection Sunday? How do you prepare yourself for Easter? I know uh, some of us have made preparations to join with family or friends after the service today. Uh, Some of us were up early this morning, getting our homes ready, preparing food. Uh, Some of us were sending messages to one another, uh, wishing them a happy Easter and uh, reminding them to to go to church. Uh, A few of us were up early preparing a message for this Sunday. Uh, This morning, I actually drove to the property uh, early this morning just so I could see the sunrise out in the parking lot out here and imagine what it would be like to have a sunrise service right here in the field. And uh, there's a reason that they call this the valley, because <laughs> it was hard to see the sun coming up, you know, with all the trees and kind of being low. Uh, but uh, there's still that, that transition from, from dark to light. So uh, even though I didn't see the sun from the, the parking lot, I did see the effect of the sun. And uh, I guess that's appropriate because uh, even though we didn't see the Son of God rise, we still see the effects of the Son of God's rising. But whether we uh, meet here or somewhere else, my plan is to try to have a sunrise service uh, next Easter, so uh, you can prepare for that. Actually, meeting at sunrise, just to to let you know, was an ancient practice of the church. There was a a Roman politician and author uh, known as Pliny the Younger, who wrote to the Roman Emperor Trajan in AD 112 to report to him about a strange sect of Christians. Listen to what he said. He says, Christians in Bithynia meet on a fixed day before dawn, and uh, that fixed day happened to be Sunday, and they recite an antiphonal hymn to Christ as God. So uh, I had to sing by myself. There was no uh, nobody responding back to me this morning, but uh, I still sang He is Lord while I was out there in in the field. There's all kinds of ways that we might prepare ourselves to celebrate the risen Christ. But when we look back to that first Easter, that first Resurrection Sunday, nobody was preparing to celebrate the risen Christ. The women who came to the tomb were not prepared to celebrate the risen Christ. They didn't come with a a new dress or an Easter hat. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, the Mary, and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. They weren't preparing for a, a resurrection day. They were preparing for a memorial service. And the spices that they prepared were for the memorial of the one that they loved. They were coming essentially to put flowers on the grave, to cry over him. They weren't preparing for a resurrection. The disciples were even worse off than that. According to John chapter 20 and verse 19, it says that on the first day of the week, that resurrection Sunday, the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They're hiding in fear. The women were preparing for the memorial of Jesus and the disciples were preparing for their own memorial. They thought they were next. 
They were not preparing themselves for a resurrection. Nobody was preparing for this resurrection day. Nobody except one group of people, but it's not the kind of preparation that you would be hoping for. Why don't you flip over to Matthew chapter 27, and we'll start at verse 62. Matthew 27, starting at verse 62. It says, Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and Father, we ask that You would grant us your help every time we come to this word. We recognize that you are the author of it. And uh, Father, I pray that you'd give us understanding. Uh, Father, that you'd bring conviction where there needs to be conviction, that you'd bring comfort where there needs to be comfort. Uh, Father, help us to to understand these words and apply them to our lives. And Father, I pray that you'd help me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we read through the gospel account here, there's Seems to be only one group of people making preparations for the third day, and that group is the enemies of Jesus Christ. The religious leaders were very concerned that something might be happening on the third day. They were anticipating the third day even more than the disciples were. They wanted to put Jesus away once and for all. They gathered around the cross to, to mock Jesus as he breathed his last When he bowed his head, they they left satisfied that their work had finally been accomplished. But as they went home that night, they began to think to themselves, and the the word started circulating, you know, didn't didn't Jesus say something about the third day? (laughs) There's something about the third day that I remember. Didn't he say something about raising again on the third day? If you remember, there were several occasions when Jesus informed his disciples that he would rise again on the third day. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, after Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Matthew chapter 17, verse 23, he told his disciples, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19 says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Before the most part, these were statements that he made to the disciples in private. But there were a few occasions where Jesus spoke publicly about his resurrection. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, it says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And over in John chapter 2, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It wasn't a secret that Jesus predicted his own resurrection. And the Jewish leaders wanted to be prepared for that day. 
Even though they, they told uh, Pilate here that they were uh, uh, fearful that the disciples might steal the body, I'm, I'm sure they might be concerned that something else might happen on that third day. Why do I say that? They knew that Jesus had the power to raise the dead. Jesus raised Jairus. Jairus' is a 12-year-old daughter from the dead. Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 7, there was a funeral procession. Jesus touches the coffin and the dead son was raised to life. And then we have uh, one person walking around by the name of Lazarus, who had just, within a couple weeks, just been raised from the dead. Just the, the week before, had been raised from the dead. These, these men knew that Jesus had the power to raise people back to life. And there's no shortage of evidence of Jesus' power. You know, today you have these kind of phony resurrections that, that take place. You know, uh, videos of, of people in, you know, Africa or somewhere else. And, you know, some, somebody's laying in a coffin and raises up. You, you know that they're phony because nobody runs and screams in terror, right? <laughs> you know, somebody waking up from the, from the dead. Here you have actual people rising from the dead and glory being given to God. And the news of a resurrected Savior would have been more dangerous than a miracle-working Savior. They didn't want Jesus to come back from the dead because they knew that that message would be so powerful that they could not contain it. So how did the religious leaders prepare for the resurrection? Look at verse 62. They prepared with fierce resistance. Fierce resistance. It says in verse 62 that now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. And you might read right past that verse 62 where it says, On the next day after the preparation... But I want to see if I can help you out with that. What is the day after the preparation? It was an important day. The, the day of preparation was an important day in Israel because it was the, the day of the week that all of the work had to be done for the following day. It was, uh, according to Exodus chapter 16, it was the day when ancient Israel gathered twice as much manna as they did on any other day so that they wouldn't gather anything on the Sabbath day. So it was considered the day of preparation. Friday was the day of preparation. Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation, Friday, the day before the Sabbath, which is clear from several passages in Mark chapter 15 and verse 42. It says it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. In a similar way, in Luke chapter 23 and verse 54, it says it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The, the Jewish custom was actually to, uh, to mark their days from sunset to sunset, so they actually began the Sabbath uh, celebration on sunset on Friday. So they wanted to make sure everything was wrapped up by sunset on Friday before the Sabbath began. It's actually because of this reason that the, the Jews asked if the legs of those who were crucified might be broken so that they could die on that Friday and be taken down before the Sabbath. You might wonder why did they ask for the, the legs to be broken it's because crucifixion was a, a slow and a painful death that often took the lives of the victims by what's known as asphyxiation, which is the process of being deprived of oxygen. According to an, an article in the, 
the Journal of American Medical Association. It says, because of the twisted position of the crucified victim, exhalation would be accomplished as an active rather than a passive process. In other words, you would have to push your body up in order to exhale, push your body up on the nails in your feet to exhale, and as you pushed up on the nails, you rubbed your back against the rough timber just to breathe, and breaking the legs beneath the knee would prevent you from pushing up and allowing you to breathe. You want to be able to pull your weight up by the, the nails that were through your wrist, and you would suffocate under your own weight. And that's what the Jewish people wanted for Jesus. But they didn't want him to hang on the Sabbath day. Deuteronomy 21 and 22 says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that ye do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Jesus became the curse, and they wanted the curse to be taken down before the Sabbath began. They definitely didn't want to be in violation of this on a Passover Sabbath, a high holy Sabbath. So they asked for Jesus and the other criminals to be taken down, and Joseph of Arimathea, with the help of Nicodemus, received the body of Jesus, prepared it for burial with the wraps, the spices, and it says, because there was a tomb nearby, his tomb was nearby, that they laid Jesus there. It had to be close because they had to take him down and put him in the tomb before 6 p.m. So Jesus bows his head at 3 p.m., and by 6 p.m., he's already in the tomb. But the leaders can't sleep. They know that Jesus has been taken down, that Jesus has been put in the tomb, but they can't sleep. The Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest, but these religious leaders are restless. Why are they restless? Because they, they can't get out of their minds that something's going to happen on the third day. So verse 62 says, Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. What day is that? It's the Sabbath day. They are so determined that here they are on this high and holy Sabbath, willing to, to plot together with a Gentile ruler, pagan ruler, for the protection, the security of the tomb of Jesus Christ. They consider this an emergency worthy of breaking the Sabbath for. What all of a sudden happened, all these restrictions that they had, you know, they're so religious and legalistic, but now they're willing to break the Sabbath and enter into a Gentile place to speak to the ruler because they're so terrified that something might happen on the third day. John 18 and verse 28, it says, on the day before, that they would not enter the praetorium where Pilate resided because they didn't want to defile themselves. You know, they wanted to eat the Passover. But now they're willing to break all their rules, all their traditions, because they're so fearful that something might happen. What happened to your ceremonial purity? They're willing to break it all because they're fearful of Jesus. Because the message that Jesus would raise from the dead is a dangerous message. It's an emergency. You know, we got to stop that message from getting out that Jesus could actually be raised from the dead. I'm telling you, Christians, you don't know what kind of message you have. It's that dangerous that people would go into panic mode to make sure that the message doesn't get out that Jesus would actually be raised from the dead. All kinds of unnatural alliances were formed against Jesus during this time. Over in Luke 23, it lets us know that Herod and Pilate became friends over their opposition to Jesus. It says that... Uh, 
The Pharisees and the chief priests got together and they always didn't get along, but they got together. And now the chief priests, the Pharisees and Pilate are all working together. Everybody's friends now. Why? Because the, fr- the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> I'm willing to make an unholy alliance because we're all getting in cahoots against Jesus. They consider Jesus a bigger threat to them than each other were to them. Even after uh, this alliance, uh, you find that uh, uh, they, they gather together to, to join themselves against Jesus. It's the same thing that Psalm 2 speaks about. You know, why are the nations in an uproar? The people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But it says that he who sits in the heavens laughs and he scoffs at them. And consider this request. Look at verse 63. It says, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver, they can't even say his name. They just call him the deceiver, that deceiver. You know, he's, he's the blind who leads the blind. That deceiver says, after three days, I'm to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. He's already deceived the people into thinking that he's the Messiah. Now he'll deceive the people into thinking that he rose again from the dead. We've got to stop the deception. So worried that somebody from the outside might be coming into the tomb. They, they didn't need to be worried about what was outside coming in. <laughs> they needed to be worried about what was inside coming out. And they have no idea what they're up against. There wasn't a force large enough in earth or hell to prevent the resurrection from happening. And all they do in God's providence is simply make it harder to prove that anything else other than a resurrection took place. That's all they did. Think about this. This proves the resurrection. First of all, number one, nobody questioned whether or not Jesus was really dead. Everybody knew that Jesus was dead. Not even his enemies questioned whether or not Jesus was dead, which should eliminate all the silly suggestions that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. There's this theory known as the swoon theory that swoon just means to faint, to faint with emotion. And the swoon theory says that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He, he simply fainted under emotional trauma. And, and when he was placed in the, the cool air of the tomb, he just kind of refreshed himself and got back up. You know, it just, just needed a nap. So, so Jesus wasn't really a, a resurrection. It was a, a resuscitation. And this is the kind of nonsense that you'll find in the, the magazine racks as you're going through the grocery stores. You know, every, around every Easter, they say, oh, you know, we got these theories on Jesus and the resurrection. You know, the Jesus seminar has something to tell you about Jesus. They have nothing to say to you about Jesus. They find it in books, pamphlets, even movies have no basis in the truth. Did Jesus really rise from the dead in his book? Thomas Miller, a well-respected surgeon and experienced scientist, he, he writes this. Anyone who thinks that Jesus was alive when removed from the cross, really has no understanding of the brutality he went through and the effects on his body that are simply incompatible with survival. The swoon theory itself should be forever buried. Never to rise again, it has no rational basis to explain Jesus' condition when declared dead. Think about what Jesus went through before the, the crucifixion. In the garden, he sweat great drops of blood, a rare condition known as hematidrosis. He was subjected to a series of six interrogations that began at 1 a.m. on Friday morning, all ending in beatings. 
He was flogged, which means that he was stripped of his clothing. He was secured to a post. His hands were tied to expose his back and his legs. To be repeatedly beaten with a rod or a whip, leather thongs were weighted with pieces of bone and metal to dig in and to rip out. He was further abused by the Roman soldiers who took their turn striking him in the face, twisting a crown of thorns in his head and beating him in his head with a reed. He then carried his own crossbeam to the place of crucifixion, staggered under the weight of the beam, which was somewhere between 75 to 125 pounds in weight. He was impaled by nails that were closer to railroad spikes in his hands and his feet, nails about five to seven inches long. And then he was hoisted into position, as Dr. Miller says, for excruciating pain, unlike anything that you or I could imagine. Every movement, no matter how minor, triggered paroxysms of pain, changes in temperature, sunlight, even breezes were additional triggering mechanisms. Survival was not an option. And the soldiers who came to check on the crucified victims were satisfied with their work. John 19.33 says one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. They didn't break his legs because they said he was already gone. Nobody questioned Jesus' death. And if Jesus didn't die, he would have never inspired his disciples to go out and proclaim that, you know, we can have a body just like his. <laughs> if, if Jesus survived this, which he, he wouldn't, who, who would say this is our victory? You know, victory in Jesus. They would run from him in terror. Nobody questioned Jesus' death, not even his enemies. They also didn't question that Jesus predicted his resurrection. This is what the, the enemies of Christ says. That deceiver says that I'm going to rise again in three days. Jesus' teachings were well documented. They admitted that. He said he's going to rise again on the third day. And all they had to do to prove Jesus a fake was to keep him in the grave for longer than three days. That's all they had to do. They only had one job. If they can produce a body, after three days, they've defeated Jesus. He's no longer trustworthy. He said he'd rise. He didn't rise. And if Jesus is dead, Christianity is dead. If Jesus is still in the grave after three days, there is no Christianity, period, end of story. Without an empty grave, you don't have a gathering of 500 disciples in Galilee. Without an empty grave, you don't have the great commission and the command from the resurrected Christ to disciples of the nations. Without an empty grave, you don't have the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Spirit. Jesus actually says, it's to my advantage that I go away so that I can send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. If Jesus doesn't go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit doesn't come. Without an empty grave, you don't have the, the missionaries that fan out across the globe. Without the resurrection, you don't have the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. You don't have the great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. You don't have the proclamation of the gospel because the resurrection is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is why we're sitting here today on a Sunday instead of some other day. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is still in the grave, we've all been duped, hoodwinked, bamboozled, right? We've all been fooled. And the Jewish leaders were highly motivated to prove that Jesus was a deceiver. They wanted to keep that body in the grave, but they could not do it. They also knew where the grave was. This eliminates any theory that they, they came to the wrong grave. They all knew where the grave was. Joseph of Arimathea was actually a part of the Jewish council, and this grave was designated for himself. 
And, and graves back in those times weren't like, you know, you just kind of get a backhoe and dig up the dirt or get a couple shovels and, you know, dig down six feet. You would take months to chisel out a rock until it was large enough for a body to enter into that rock. You would, with, with hammer and chisel, you would chisel out a rock. This is something that was worked on for months. It was a construction project. And Joseph of Arimathea was one of their council members. They all knew it. Like, hey, Joseph, that's a fine piece of property you got there. It was a new tomb. It was just made. It was a fresh, hewn-out rock. Matthew 27, it says, uh, Joseph took the body. If you look down at verse 59, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. My point here is that there is no mistaking Jesus' grave for somebody else's grave. Everybody knew where the, the grave was. And this also eliminates the excuse of a stolen body, which is actually what they try to make an excuse for later on. Think about it. They actually stationed a battalion of Roman soldiers to make sure that that excuse wouldn't work. That nobody could say that, oh, somebody came and stole the body. Why? Because the soldiers were there. I mean, what geniuses. All they did was make it harder for anybody to say that anything else other than a resurrection took place. Everything that they did just proves the resurrection. The guard was there when it all happened. So they have to make an even more unbelievable story. Look down at chapter 28, look at verse 11. It says, now while they were on their way... Some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day, which is one of the most unbelievable stories you could ever come up with. Because how are you to give a testimony about what happened while you were sleeping? While we were sleeping, they came and took the body. The details of this text actually prove the resurrection. And it's all because they were so fiercely opposed. They fiercely resisted the resurrection. That's how they prepared for Easter. They fiercely resisted the resurrection. These men weren't ignorant of Jesus' claims. They were familiar with the teaching of Jesus. They even knew what day he was supposed to rise from the dead. They heard his teachings. They witnessed his miracles. They knew about his power. They knew that he could raise the dead. Actually, Lazarus was walking right there among them. And instead of bowing to the lordship of Christ and recognizing that, yes, he is who he says he is. Look at Lazarus. How can we deny that he has the power to raise the dead? This, this must be the Christ. Instead of recognizing that Lazarus is, you know, exhibit A for the power of Jesus Christ, they want to kill him and hide the evidence. That's what they want to do. They are so fiercely opposed to Jesus Christ that they would rather kill Lazarus than recognize that Lazarus is an example of why we need to believe. Jesus pictured these religious leaders as the vine growers in Matthew 21 who saw the son coming to collect the produce from his own vineyard. It says in Matthew 21 verse 38, but when the vine growers saw the son they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. Fiercely opposed to the rule of Christ. And I wonder if we have anybody like that who's here with us today. Somebody that might be familiar 
with who Christ is. You're familiar with what Christ has done, but you're still opposed to his rule over your life. You have all the information, but you're like those in Luke 19 who say that I will not have this man to rule over me. If you're going to come to Jesus Christ, you have to acknowledge him as Lord, right? He's in charge. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have to acknowledge him as Lord. I have to confess with my mouth. I have to say the same thing that God says about Christ. He's Lord. He's in charge. I submit to him. Fierce resistance is not the way to prepare for Easter. Is there anybody here who is fiercely resisting Jesus Christ? The second way not to prepare for Easter is with Fearful reluctance. Look at verse 65. It says, Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. According to John chapter 19, Pilate was making efforts to release Jesus because he knew that he was innocent. Over in John chapter 19, why don't you just turn there really quick. John chapter 19. You have Pilate who's making these, these efforts to set Jesus free. He doesn't want to have anything to do with condemning an innocent man. Look at John 19. Look at verse verse 12. It says, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And actually, in, back in Matthew 27, it says that while he was on the seat, this, the seat of judgment, that his wife sent him a message while he's here to, to condemn Christ. Sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. He's already trying to release him. He's already feeling, feeling, feeling bad about going through with this. And then his wife sends him a message while he's sitting down, like, like, while he's been pushed into this position. His wife then sends him an extra message. Don't do this. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. I suffered last night greatly in a dream because of him. And then in verse 24 of Matthew 27, it says, When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing but that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Pilate was reluctant to do what was right because he was fearful of the consequences. Just went along with the plan in order to keep his position and in order to keep the peace. So here he is again with another request as the Jewish leaders come to him again in verse 65 back in Matthew 27. And Pilate says, just, just take, what, take what you want. You have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And at this point, you can imagine that Pilate is has got to be sick of these requests. Why does this man keep coming back to me? Like every time I try to remove myself from anything to do with Jesus, it keeps coming back. He's already tried unsuccessfully to have nothing to do with them. Then after the crucifixion, they're asking him to break their legs. Then Joseph of Arimathea comes and asks for the body. And now on the Sabbath day, the Jewish council comes back and asks for a guard to be sent around the tomb. And he's just like, just have it. Get out of here. Like I'm done with this guy. You could just imagine Pilate just saying, take whatever you want just to be rid of him. But Pilate was uh, paid back for his evil. According to history, Pilate was banished by the Roman government in 36 AD, and he committed suicide. Who knows? He might have been 
trying to shake this guilt of murdering Jesus. His hands were dirty, even though he tried to wash them clean. His hands were still dirty because he was reluctant to do what was right. Because he's fearful, fearful of the people. They, They might turn me in. I might lose my position. He lost it anyway. The Roman government removed him. Do we have anybody here who might be fearfully reluctant to follow Jesus Christ because you're concerned about the consequences? What, what happens if I give my life to Jesus? What if, what if I lose my friends? What if I lose my family? What if I lose my job? What if I lose the things that I, I find really enjoyable, the pleasures of life? What if I lose that if I give my life over to Jesus Christ? Here you have Pilate. He's fearful of what he's going to lose. If I do the right thing, I might lose out. I don't want to lose. So he goes along with the plan. And there's maybe somebody here who's just kind of going along with what your friends say or family says. Because it's like, I don't, I don't want to lose my family. I mean, I, I love my family. I don't want to lose my friends. I don't want to lose my popularity, my position. You know, if my job finds out about this, you know, they might not let me work tomorrow if I really follow after Jesus Christ. It's, it's too much to lose. I, I don't want to lose out by following after Jesus Christ. How can I deny myself? But that's exactly what Matthew 16 says that you need to do, right? Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? If you have everything and you lose your soul, what do you have? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. People trying to, trying to keep what they have in this life and losing their souls for eternity. It's worth whatever you lose to follow after Jesus Christ. Amen? <laughs> it's worth whatever you lose to follow after Jesus Christ. Matthew 13 and verse 33 says, actually verse 44, says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Pilate was fearfully reluctant to do what was right, and he suffered in time and eternity. That's not how to prepare for Easter. You don't prepare for Easter by being fearfully reluctant. He gives them this guard. Interesting that they ask for a guard. Soldiers, they want soldiers. Actually, the Jewish officers already, they already had like a police force around the temple. Why, why didn't they use them? You know, apparently they believed they needed more firepower to deal with what was going on at the tomb. So they want trained killers to be there. That's what the soldiers were, trained killers. We want them to be around the tomb. Who knows, maybe they anticipated that Christ might even show up and they wanted somebody there to put him back to death again, just like they wanted to do to Lazarus. One ancient preacher said, they who seized him while living are now afraid of him while he's dead. (laughs) They were fearful of the body in the tomb because they knew that a Messiah that personally conquered death would be unstoppable and the news about a resurrection would be worse for them. You know what kind of message we have? Like I said, this is an unstoppable message. It's a dangerous message. And as you know, that this kind of battalion was doomed to fail. You don't prepare for Easter by being fiercely resistant. 
You don't prepare for Easter by being fearfully reluctant. And you don't prepare for Easter by being falsely ignorant. It's a false ignorance. Look at verse 66. It says, And they went and made the grave secure and went along, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. They get this guard. Actually, history tells us that the soldiers that Pilate traveled with uh, resided in a place known as Caesarea Maritime. Was on the Mediterranean coast outside of the areas where Jesus ministered. So they didn't have a lot of familiarity with Jesus. Pilate and these soldiers wouldn't have, wouldn't have had a lot of opportunities to cross paths with Jesus. In fact, the Roman cohort was largely made up of Syrians, outsiders, foreigners. They, they really didn't have much familiarity with what was going on in Galilee and in Jerusalem. But that didn't mean that they shouldn't have asked more questions. <laughs> Like, like, hold on a minute. Like, who is, who is this that we're supposed to be? A tomb? You're sending me to guard? Who is in this tomb? Who is this guy? What, what did he say? He's going to rise again. What, who in the world is this? They, they should have been asking more questions, but they, they just kind of ignorantly went along with it. And they definitely pretend to be ignorant when they later on take a bribe, take a bribe at the hands of the Jewish council to say that, you know, tell, tell everybody that you were just asleep while this happened. So they, they, they were falsely ignorant. They, they pretended that they were ignorant. They weren't really ignorant. They should have known better. They should have at least asked questions. They're feigning ignorance. So they marched down to the tomb to secure the grave as best as they know how. Refusing to dig into what's really going on, but they have no idea what they're up against. Like, like I said, there, there wasn't a force large enough on earth or in hell to prevent the resurrection from taking place. Jesus is coming out, okay? He's coming out. But they do their job making sure that the tomb was sealed from the outside. One commentator describes the tomb. He says that the sepulcher was probably a small chamber along one side was a shelf cut in the rock. And on this shelf, the body was laid. The great stone forming the door to the tomb was likely round and had a flat, flat-like surface, a millstone, laying upright against the face of the rock in which the excavation was made. And having examined the tomb to make sure that it was secure on the inside, they sealed the tomb from the outside so that the slightest disturbance could be detected. The seal that would have been uh, created and placed on the tomb was a clay-like substance, wax or clay-like substance, that a, a seal would have been placed into to make sure that anybody would know that, that if whoever tampers with this tampers with Pilate. You know, you, you tamper with this at, your, at the, the cost of your life. And the guards stood to watch. You know, the seals on there, the guards around there. But early on that morning, after the Sabbath, their worst fears were realized. Matthew 28. And this is, this is uh, the, the part that we're waiting to get to, right? Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold... A severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Heaven could care less about whatever security system you have in place. You know, whatever seals you've put in place. As Psalm 2 and verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. What are, what are these puny soldiers doing here around the tomb? Do they think that's going to stop me? You think I care about the authority of Pilate? You know, you put your seal on it. You think that's going to stop me? As for me, the Lord says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. 
Their authority is meaningless. Their power is useless. What kind of backup do you think you need for omnipotent power? I mean, who's going to be here to stop you? You know, lanterns, torches, clubs, spears, soldiers, swords. You know, you're going to need a little more firepower than that. Do you think anything's going to stop Jesus from coming out? He who sits in the heavens laughs. And now they're forced to tell the story that they were actually there to prevent. (laughs) They were there to prevent the story that the disciples came and stole them away. But now that's the same story that they have to now spread. The disciples came and stole them away. But you have these soldiers who now pretend to be ignorant of what really took place. They're feigning ignorance, a false ignorance. And I'm wondering if we have anybody here today who's feigning ignorance, pretending to be ignorant of these things. You know, if if I would believe if there was only just a little more evidence to believe. I mean, I, I really want to believe in Jesus. But there's just not enough evidence I mean, if, if God performed the miracles today like he did back then, I mean, you know, it wouldn't be a problem at all. You know, I'd, I'd believe if I saw, you know, an axe head float, a donkey talk, you know, I, I'd believe. I mean, wouldn't you believe? I, I'd believe if I actually saw a miracle in my presence. I mean, I'd believe in God. It's as if you, you just dismissed the whole of the Old Testament. You ever read the Old Testament? <laughs> the children of Israel witnessed the plagues in Egypt. The children of of Israel heard the voice of God from Mount Sinai. The sound of the trumpet, the the fire, the smoke. The children of Israel ate the the bread from heaven, manna from heaven. They got breakfast from the sky. I mean, you talk about DoorDash. I mean, it's just falling from the sky. Breakfast every morning, falling down. They ate bread from heaven. Was that enough to make them believe? Was that enough? Hebrews chapter 4. What does it say? Hebrews chapter 4, looking at verse 1. It says, Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith, And those who heard. (laughs) There are many people who saw all the miracles, the works of God. They ate the bread from heaven and they still didn't believe. Because it wasn't mixed with faith. Have you ever read the Gospels? (laughs) Jesus proves his power over disease, disaster, demons, death. Lazarus is walking around and people still aren't believing in Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? You just need another miracle? Jesus was raised from the dead. And you, now, now all of a sudden you think, I, I'd be different. You know, I, I really want to believe. I'm just ignorant. I just, I just need a little more evidence. Just, just a little more to prove to me that Jesus really is who he says he is. God says you're not ignorant. You're not ignorant. God says you're unrighteous. God says that you're arrogant. You're not ignorant, you're arrogant. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 19, it says, The God has made himself evident by what's been seen. God makes himself plain. His righteousness has been revealed. His, his eternal nature, his Godhead has been revealed in what's all around us. God has convinced us that we're sinners in the sight of a holy God. God has convinced us of that. And there's only one solution 
to that dilemma, which is Jesus Christ, who he sent. You're not you're not ignorant. In John 319, it says that we don't come to the light, not because we're we're ignorant of the light. It's because we hate the light because our deeds are evil. That's why we don't come to the light. But the message of the gospel is out and all the lies fall flat on their face. And this message is unstoppable. And as powerful as the testimony of Christ was while he walked on the earth, the testimony is even more powerful when he walked out of the grave. <laughs> the news of a resurrected Christ is dangerous. Do you know what kind of message you have? Do you know what kind of firepower you have with the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is the, the message that sent the, the Jewish council into a panic emergency mode. You know, hey, hit the panic button. Somebody stop Jesus from coming out. If that message gets out, we're done for. That's the kind of message that we have. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, it changes everything. Changes everything. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. You know, we couldn't pass by a Resurrection Sunday without reading 1 Corinthians 15. I won't read the whole thing, but take a look at uh, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 13. Actually, I'll start at verse 12. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, everything that we've done and will do is for absolutely nothing. It's all vain, vanity. But the resurrection changes everything, doesn't it? Because of Jesus' resurrection, there is a resurrection from the dead. Because of the resurrection, our preaching is not vain, but it's valuable. Because of the resurrection, our, our faith is not futile. Because of the resurrection, we are true witnesses of God. Because of the resurrection, we're forgiven of our sins. Because of the resurrection, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have been protected. They haven't perished. Because of the resurrection, we are not of all men the most to be pitied, but the most to be prized. Because of the resurrection, we have hope. And this is the resurrection message that these men try to prevent from getting out. Do you understand what kind of message you have? Do you understand the value of the message that we have in the resurrection? So that we don't prepare for Easter by being fiercely resistant. We don't prepare for Easter by being fearfully reluctant. We don't prepare for Easter by feigning ignorance, pretending to be ignorant. We prepare for Easter by having full faith and reliance on Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this truth of the resurrection. Uh, Father, we uh, thank you that we're of those who have a full faith and reliance, a faithful reliance on the Savior. Oh, Father, we are those who faithfully rely on him. We're, we're not like those who resist him. 
We're not like those who are reluctant against him. We're not like, like those who play ignorant, who say that we're ignorant of him. We're those with a faithful reliance on Jesus Christ. And because he lives, we shall live also. Uh, because of, of his resurrection, Lord, we have life. We have the forgiveness of sins. And because of this message, Lord, uh, this message of the gospel, we can share with this dying world the message of hope. Uh, so, Father, I pray that we would recognize what a message we have, uh, that if Jesus is truly risen from the, the grave, Lord, that this message changes absolutely everything. Uh, so, Father, I pray that we would understand that we carry a dangerous message, a message that, that all of hell tried to prevent from coming out, uh, but it's the same message that grants life. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So, Father, I pray that if there are any here today who have not believed in your Son, who have not trusted in your Son, who have not turned from their sins to look to Christ, the risen Savior, my Father, I pray that today would be the day. And, uh, my Father, I pray that you, Lord, would be honored as we lift high the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. In Jesus' name I pray and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr., of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.